Chapter 30 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 30. A Pampero. On our sixth day out, Sunday, the 20th of November, the northeast wind fell away and we were left rolling about in a calm under an overcast sky from which a constant drizzle descended. We were about 340 miles from the nearest land, but did not know our exact position, as the weather had prevented our taking an observation of the sun for three days. The barometer had fallen rather suddenly a tenth and a half, but there were no indications of bad weather in the heavens. However, the river plate Pompero is not wont to give much forewarning of this kind, and often comes on with such suddenness that the sails can scarce be taken off a vessel before she is in the midst of the furious hurricane. The glass did not fall for nothing this day. At midday, the sky cleared, a light northeast wind sprang up. It was the finest imaginable weather, and a tempest seemed a very remote contingency. But at 12.30, there suddenly rose from the southern horizon into the clear blue sky an inky mass of cloud that spread over the heavens and advanced towards us with tremendous rapidity. It was a most ominous appearance. There arose a great bustle at once on board the yacht. We lowered all our canvas on deck, stowed the mainsail as closely as possible, and lashed the boom firmly amidships. On board a full-rigged ship that was about a mile to windward of us, the crew were taking in canvas as rapidly as possible. We made all snug, then waited to see what was coming, and not long had we to wait. The massive cloud was over our heads, and in another moment it had covered all the heavens. For the first few minutes there was no wind, but a fearful downpour of rain, bucketfuls of it almost literally. The conflict between the opposing southerly and northeasterly winds caused a dead calm by us, then the storm wind gained the day, drove back the feebler monsoon, and we were scudding rapidly before a heavy southeasterly gale. We put the storm trysail, a jib-headed one, on the little ship, and the storm jib, under which canvas she behaved very well. But here, let me remark that every small fore and after that is bound for a lengthy ocean cruise should carry a small square sail of stout canvas for running before strong gales. I much regretted not having provided myself with this sail. Under such a square sail, the little craft can run dead before the wind and waves without any fear of jimming. During the afternoon, the wind came round from the southeast to the southwest, as is the custom of the Pompero, and increased much in violence. The sea, too, rose very suddenly, and some of the waves that followed us looked so formidable that I regretted not having hove the vessel to with a floating anchor out. This would have been the more prudent measure, but now it would have been dangerous to have attempted to bring her up to the wind with such a sea running. It was not a true sea, either, that was following us, for the waves not only came up behind us before the southwest wind, but occasionally a nasty cross-sea from the southeast would worry us, which we had to meet with a helm so as to avoid taking these dangerous waves broadside on. The falcon behaved wonderfully well in this, the heaviest weather I have ever seen her in. Giant billows with overhanging, breaking crests came rolling on us, looking as if they must inevitably overwhelm the vessel, 
but she would toss up her heels as they approached, and they would thunder by without sending much water on her decks. This was a severe test for her seaworthiness, and she certainly did not belie her old reputation of the English Channel. During the night, when it was very dark, steering was anxious, for it was difficult for the helmsman to perceive in time and bear away from the cross seas that came up steeper and higher than ever, at intervals of about ten minutes. During my watches this night, I had to do more than my proper share of steering, for the boy, Arthur Cotton, had managed to steal some rum from the barrel below and had brought himself into a condition of the most helpless drunkenness to console himself for the bad weather. So he passed the night snoring loudly under the boat on deck. He had to make up these arrears by steering with interest afterwards and was deprived of sundry luxuries for some time to come. Throughout the next day, the 21st of November, the gale blew with increased violence. The sea, too, was higher. We shipped a good deal of water over our quarter at times as we rolled about in the confused seas which came up from the southwest and southeast alternately, so that the vessel required very careful steering. Panissa proved himself so bad a helmsman that we found we could not trust him at the tiller at all, so he enjoyed a holiday throughout the remainder of the pampero. It is generally observed that, during a prolonged gale, two or four rollers, far higher than any others, occur at long intervals, say, of twelve hours. And it is no doubt, as a rule, one of such exceptionally lofty and breaking seas that overwhelms the vessel and causes her to founder. At four o'clock this afternoon, two such gigantic billows came right astern. I was steering at the time. The cook, who was on deck, suddenly cried out, Caramba, que maracada! And looking over my shoulder, I perceived a huge wave of green water with an ugly, overcurling, breaking crest rapidly overtaking us. It seemed that it must have a certainty fallen us, and that it was quite impossible for the falcon to rise to such a steep wall of water. That she would be rolled over and over by it certainly seemed probable to me at that moment. I observed, however, that the wave was not breaking just at the portion where it would strike us, though it broke heavily at either side. I only took a second's glance, jammed myself firmly inside the tiller rope, and steered so that the wave would strike us dead aft. Suddenly up went our stern with a jerk that jumped me off my feet, a few bucketfuls of water tumbled on board, then flew over our bow, till our deck was at an angle of forty-five degrees. The roller had passed us. It had struck us so true that we remained on an even keel without the slightest list to port or starboard. But the peril was far from over yet. Another equally lofty roller followed close, and between the two was a valley so narrow and steep that it was impossible that the falcon, after her descent, could raise her stern in time to meet the second wall of water. After a glance over my shoulder, which sufficed me to take in the danger of the situation, I turned my back on the roller again and kept the vessel dead before it. We slid down the slope of the liquid valley, then our stern commenced to rise a little as the foot of the second wave reached us, and then there was a crash and a sudden darkness, and I felt a mass of water rush right over my head. It is all up with us, I thought. That is, if I thought at all, for the, all this had occupied but a few seconds. I think, however, all on board imagined that we had foundered. Doubtlessly, 
To anyone looking from above, the masts of the vessel would at that moment alone have been visible. The whole hull must have been submerged. But the falcon was strong. The mass of water had not broken through her decks. Just as she had met the first wave, she met this, not the least on one quarter or the other, so we escaped broaching two, a probable occurrence in the presence of such monster waves, and one that would, of course, have ensured our loss. In another second, as I opened my eyes after the stunning effect of the deluge of water, I saw the bulwarks rise above the sea, and then the little vessel gave herself a sort of shake of relief, and the water soon poured out through her scuppers, this being facilitated by the comparatively calm sea that always succeeds to exceptionally high waves. The cook, I observed, had held on tightly and had not been washed overboard. Then the companion hatch slid back, and the mate and Panisa came up, with faces very pallid. When they heard the shock of the mass of water on deck, they said they distinctly felt the vessel go down and were sure she was foundering. This was the only occasion during the cruise in which we were in serious peril. Had we taken the first roller on board, the second, falling on us as we lay deadened and stunned with our decks full of water, would certainly have sent us down. During the second night of the gale, steering was more anxious work than ever, for it was too dark to distinguish the perilous cross-seas. It is no easy work on a black night to luff or bear away continually to two seas coming up at right angles to each other. But about midnight there came a change in the weather that was, in a way, favorable to us. The southwest gale continued, but at frequent intervals southeast squalls of great violence, accompanied by heavy rain, would drive across the sea. These blew off the tops of the waves into blinding sheets of spray so that we could distinguish nothing, but so furious were they that they soon blew down the high and breaking seas and converted the ocean into a confused mass of short, choppy, foaming waves of little height and in no way dangerous. We had to bear away and run before these squalls when they struck us. The southwester now gradually moderated and veered around to the south, then by the morning of the 22nd of November to the southeast. It was squally and rough still, but the gale had evidently broken, and the glass was rising steadily. I managed to get an observation of the sun and found our position to be latitude 31 degrees, 58 minutes south, longitude 43 degrees, 57 minutes west. We had therefore run about 300 miles in a northeast direction before the Pompero, that is, nearly parallel to the coast. At midday, we got into a calmer sea, and the wind being now about east, we steered northeast, sailing full and by on the starboard tack. The sky was now cloudless, so contentment and joy filled our souls at the contrast between this delicious weather and the recent storm. Our decks presented a very agreeable appearance, and a somewhat picturesque one, a scene of idyllic repose if the term is applicable to a seascape. The vessel was sailing her five knots through the dark blue water, throwing up two wings of silver spray on either bow. Italian garments, more or less ragged and of rich colors, festooned the rigging to dry in the warm sunshine. All hands were basking on deck in their several fashions, the cook lying on the upturned boat, eagerly scanning his fishing line that was dragging aft, his whole soul in his favorite sport the mate mending a pair of pantaloons under the bulwark, 
Panessa, looking sentimental the while, was sitting on the hatch, playing Spanish airs and selections from Italian operas on his accordion. The captain lay on his back on deck in the sun, drying, smoking, and contemplating the sky, a volume of Balzac by his side. The boy, stubborn and stern and silent, was steering, making up arrears, a suspicious lump in his cheek betokening a quid, a luxury the young rascal was over-addicted to. But we were not long to enjoy this pleasant dolce farniente in the sunshine, for by night the wind had got around to the northeast again, and an uncomfortable fortnight was before us of wearisome beating up against the squally, rainy monsoon across a leaden-colored sea under a sunless sky. We had now got an offing of about 350 miles, but I wished to increase this distance considerably if possible, for further to the eastward we should probably encounter southeasterly winds. In latitude 20 degrees 30 minutes south, and some 700 miles from the Brazilian coast, is situated the group of desert islands known as the Trinidad and Martin Vos. Of these, Trinidad is a fair-sized island about 15 English miles in circumference with lofty, rugged mountains. As our course was likely to bring us somewhere in its vicinity, I thought it would be quite worth our while to effect the landing and explore it, if it possible. The description of this islet and South Atlantic directory was certainly tempting, though hinting at dangers, and there were held out to us in this work promises of good fishing around its coasts and sport among the hogs and goats in its ravines, not to mention turtles, green food, wreckage, and other attractions. The following is taken from the description in the above-mentioned work. Quote, Trinidad is surrounded by sharp, rugged coral rocks with an almost continual surge breaking on every part, which renders landing often precarious and watering frequently impracticable. Nor is there a possibility of rendering either certain for the surface often incredibly great, and has been seen during a gale at southwest to break over a bluff which is 200 feet high. Captain Edmund Haley, afterwards Dr. Haley, Astronomer Royal, landed on this island the 17th of April, 1700, and put on it some goats and hogs and also a pair of guinea fowl which he carried from St. Helena. I took, says his journal, possession of the island in His Majesty's name, as knowing it to be granted by the king's letters patent, leaving the Union Jack flying. When the English went to Trinidad in 1781 in order to ascertain whether a settlement was practicable there, they did not find it answer their expectations. The American commander, Amaso Delano, visited Trinidad in 1803, and he again describes it as mostly barren, rough pile of rocky mountains. What soil there is on the island he found on the eastern side, where are several sand beaches, above one of which the Portuguese had a settlement. This settlement was directly above the most northerly sand beach on the east side of the island and has the best stream of water on the island running through it. Delano got his water off the south side of the island. Here a stream falls in a cascade over rocks some way up the mountains, so that it can be seen from a boat when passing it. After you have discovered the stream, you can land on a point of rocks just to the westward of the watering place, and from thence may walk past it, and when a little to the eastward, there is a small cove among the rocks where you may float your casks off. 
Wood may be cut on the mountain, just above the first landing place, and you may take it off if you have a small oak boat. All the south side of the island is indented with small bays, but the whole is so iron-bound to coast and such a swell surging against it that it is almost impossible to land a boat without great danger of staving it. The south part is a very remarkable high square bluff head and is very large. There is a sand beach to the westward of this head, but I should caution against landing on this beach, for just at the lower edge of it and amongst the breakers, it is full of rocks which are not seen till you are amongst them. If a ship is very much in need of wood or water, it may be got at Trinidad, or if the crew should have the scurvy, it is an excellent place to recruit them in, as you can get plenty of greens on the southeast part, such as fine purslane. We, Delano, found plenty of goats and hogs. The latter were very shy, but we killed some of them and a number of goats. We also saw some cats. End quote. When my man heard of the intention of sailing to this lone island in the South Atlantic, they expressed great delight, especially when they learnt that pigs and goats were reported to be its sole inhabitants. On this, the 23rd day of November, being our ninth day out, Trinidad was about a thousand miles to the northeast of us. And now we had a troublesome time of it. The wind was ever varying. Now we lay up to the northeast on the starboard tack, now could only fetch up to the east or even southeast. We were often going about, and sometimes were considerably puzzled on which tack to put the vessel, both being bad. The one taking us to the south of east, a retrograde direction, the other toward the land which we wished to avoid. The weather, too, was abominable. The rain was almost constant, and heavy squalls were very frequent, so that we had often to lower our mainsail on deck till they passed by. A very nasty, choppy sea, too, was perpetually running, which deadened our way considerably and kept us constantly wet. We did not average a hundred miles a day. For two nights we had to heave the vessel, too, so heavily was she laboring. The poor cook was in great trouble all this while, for cooking was attended with decided difficulties. Now and then, especially when the lubberly Panisa was steering, a sea would come over the bows, find its way down the chimney, extinguish the stove, and spoil the polenta or savory dolphin stew. Then would the forecastle manhole cover be shoved aside, and above the deck would appear the cook's ferocious face and gaunt tattooed arm, which latter he would shake menacingly at the guilty helmsman, while he thundered out sonorous Italian oaths on his head, until another green sea came on board and quenched his ire whereupon he would disappear suddenly, and the hatch would close over him as on a jack-in-the-box. Poor Cook. He had many troubles, not least among which were the cockroaches which swarmed in millions on the falcon since her visit to Paraguay. These would devour all the vegetables and the dried fish. Indeed, nothing came amiss to them. They supped one night on Panisa's kid boots. For that mariner, like many Italian sailors, possessed a shore-going pair of high-heeled French kid boots. They honeycombed all our biscuits. Our soup always came on the table thickened with these filthy insects so that we had to skim it carefully before eating. They were everywhere and not to be avoided. To exterminate them, we should have had to take everything out of the vessel. But the cook consoled himself for presidials with the anticipation of future bliss, 
for he was wont to picture to himself all manner of wonderful fun he was going to have at Trinidad, how he would salt down tons of fish and turtles, cure bacon, collect birds' eggs. It was arranged that he should go on shore at daylight each day to milk the goats for our morning coffee. He was pleased and excited at this prospect, and volunteered to accompany me on a thorough voyage of exploration among those untrodden volcanic crags, for he had in his blood some of the adventurous spirit of his fellow-citizen Columbus. On looking over my log for this voyage, I find the same constantly recurring entries of the following dreary nature. Constant rain, four violent squalls in succession, still battened down, ship taking much water over her bows. We had, indeed, a most uncomfortable time of it. I believe, during this fortnight, the falcon jumped about more and shipped more water than during all her previous existence. To be constantly battened down was highly unpleasant, especially as we advanced northward into warmer weather. Although the sky was ever clouded and pouring down almost unremitting rain on us, the temperature was high, 75 degrees to 80 degrees. The sea, too, was of about the same temperature and felt like hot water as it washed over us, for we were sailing against the warm equatorial current that flows down the coast of Brazil at the rate of 20 miles a day. The atmosphere in the cabin was horribly close, and after a few hours' sleep below, one invariably awoke with a headache. This was not to be wondered at, for ventilation, of course, there was none, and the stove poisoned us with carbonic acid gas. The compound odor, too, was quite indescribable. The strings of garlic and onions that festooned the forecastle, the reeking garments of the crew, the foul smell of the cockroaches could be too easily distinguished. But there were other subtle and pungent smells besides that defied analysis. How we damp wretches looked forward to the time when we should be running with easy motion again before the soft trades under sunny skies, instead of this perpetual jumping into the steep seas with shock and sound as if the vessel was striking a rock, till one's head swam round with the dizziness of the irregular leapings and fallings. The health of the crew was affected by this unwholesome, tepid weather. The constant exposure to the humidity, not of the sea only, but of the rains and soaking dews, brought on rheumatism and a great languor and debility. Our sleep was heavy and unrefreshing. We woke with big aching heads and pains in the eyes and neck. Some of the symptoms, such as the sense of debility, I was inclined to attribute, in the case of the crew, to the fact of their constantly wearing their oilskins. In warm weather like this, no practice could be more unwholesome. I myself was suffering from a recurrence of old malarial symptoms and the cook from ophthalmia. And so we thrashed up against the monsoon, as a rule close-hauled on the starboard tack, but occasionally on the other when the wind favored it, until the 27th of November, our 13th day out, when our position at midday was latitude 24 degrees 53 minutes south, our longitude 39 degrees 57 minutes west. We were thus distant but 160 miles from Cape Frio. On the following day, Cape San Tomé bore 118 miles to the northwest by west. We had crossed Capricorn and were once more in the tropics. We were now so much to leeward of Trinidad, which was 568 miles to the east-northeast, that I determined to abandon the projected visit to the desert island 
and sailed direct for Bahia, which bore some 600 miles to the north of us. But I consoled the cook with a promise that we should anchor a few days along the Albrojas rocks, which lay on our course. The waters round these are reported to abound with fish. The wind now became more variable and gusty than ever. Sometimes it blew from the north, sometimes from the south of east, and for several days we beat up against a very confused and troublesome sea. On the 2nd of December, Trinidad lay 370 miles to the east by north of us, the Albrojas rocks 220 miles to the northwest. On the 3rd of December, the weather cleared to our great delight, and the sun made its appearance, so we were enabled to hang out our drenched garments to dry. Everything, even to our bedding, had been wet through for three weeks. Our rigging now presented a goodly show of gaudy-colored rags, blankets, and oils fluttering in the wind, suggesting reminiscences of Ratcliffe Highway slop shops. On the 4th of December, the wind chopped right around to the north-northwest and blew hard right in our teeth if we continued our course to Bahia. But it was fair for Trinidad, now only 200 miles distant to the east-southeast. It looked, too, as if it would last, so, after inspecting the chart and thinking the matter over, I determined to alter our course once more and run for Trinidad. I came on deck and gave instructions to this effect to the mate. The men were delighted at the welcome news and eased off sheets and got the spinnaker on with great alacrity. Delightful to us was the easy motion of our vessel, now running before the wind and sea after all our tacking. But this pleasant state of things was not to last long. The falcon seemed to be a very flying Dutchman, for whichever way we altered our course, the wind would suddenly turn around and head us. At 10 p.m., the wind quite suddenly came around to the east-northeast again, taking our sails aback, so we had to take in the spinnaker, trim sheets, and put her close hauled on the port tack. Later on, the wind got round to the east-southeast, that is, dead in our teeth. The mate suggested wearing around and running for Bahia, but I would not alter my plans again, and determined now to sail to Trinidad however long it took us to get there. Besides, if we were to alter our destination with each change of the fickle monsoon, we should be ever going backwards and forwards across this dreary bit of ocean and never fetch anywhere. On the morning of the 6th of December, the wind got round again to the north-northeast, so we were able to lay up for our island with flowing sheets. At midday, Trinidad was 112 miles to the east-southeast of us, so the cook, wild with eager anticipation, overhauled his apparatus of destruction and got everything in readiness, fishing lines, harpoons, casks for preserving pork and goat flesh in, and so on. The 7th of December was a calm, cloudless day and hot. At 8 a.m. we were about 46 miles from Trinidad, at which distance its lofty mountains should be visible in clear weather. As the sun rose higher, we perceived to the southeast, in which direction we expected to discover the island, a bank of cloud on the horizon. We knew that the lonely rock of ocean lay in the midst of this, for all such lofty and isolated islands attracted them masses of clouds. The multitudes of fish, too, that swam around our vessel were a sure indication of the vicinity of land. At 11 a.m., this vapor lifted somewhat, and we distinguished the whole rugged form of the iron-bound island, its pyramidal summits being capped by clouds. 
but the ill fate of Vanderdecken seemed still to attend us, for the wind, that though light, had been fair, fell away. We had been allowed to catch a glimpse only of our much-desired port, when heavy banks of clouds rose from the southeast horizon with ominous rapidity, and scarce had we time to take in our spinnaker and reef our mainsail before the squall was on us, blowing right in our teeth from the direction of the island, and accompanied by a regular tropical downpour of rain. The whole heavens were now covered with rolling vapor, and, of course, the island became invisible to us. The southeast wind blew throughout the rest of the day, and a steady drizzle set in that promised to last some time. But, taking short boards, we sailed on against wind and rain undiscouraged, for we were so near to our destination that we could now afford to laugh at the foul weather. Already we smelt the smell of the roast pigs, and our mouths were watering at the thought of the delectable crisp crackling thereof. At night the sky cleared, and in the bright moonlight we once more perceived Trinidad standing out black and distinct, with rugged outline before the blue starlit sky, one solitary white cloud crowning its highest peak. The wind blew steadily from the southeast. This is the prevailing wind off Trinidad, for the island lies outside the regions of the Brazilian monsoon and within the zone of the southeast trades. End of chapter 30